0: Welcome to World Oil's Oil Field Electrification Technology Podcast, sponsored by Joliet Electric Motors, powering today's oil field for tomorrow's energy. So,
1: I'm Jim Watkins, here with my co-host,
0: Shane Hackenberg.
1: Shane, how's it going today?
0: Man, it's beautiful. How about yourself?
1: I am doing great. You know why? (laughs) Because we're here at the Blend Bar in the Woodlands. We got to do a little plug for the Blend Bar, but this place is fantastic. It's the best place to record.
0: It's not bad, man. Having a little cigar and drinking on, I call it whiskey, man. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <like> that's <laughs> fun and it's exciting because now we're starting to dig into the topics and we're talking about microgrids today and so we're really excited today because we have the guys from lifecycle power and that's their business so welcome to the show george and justin how you doing jim
2: thanks for having us Thank on you.
1: Justin's on by phone. Can you hear us okay, Justin? Yes, sir, I can. Excellent. All right. We're excited because you are our very first phone call-in guest, caller number one. That's that's what you are,
3: man. Congratulations. So, one and only. I'm going to try my best not to screw it up.
1: <laughs> nah, you, you can't. You can't. And so George is George Jackson, the EVP of business development at Lifecycle Power. And Justin is Justin Lippman, West Texas sales manager. So let's start with you, George how did you come to be in this business?
2: That's a long, interesting question and answer, I guess. I actually knew, I got my start in the electric motor business about 10 years ago. I was in banking first and then decided to get in the electric motor generator manufacturing space. And actually, as I started getting in that space, it's all kind of a growing trend of this new technology called electric frac and started chasing those opportunities in the oil and gas space, man, seven years ago. And Actually, funny enough, one of my biggest competitors was Shane Hackenberg, who's on the, is one of your hosts. <laughs> that's, how, that's how we met. <laughs> that's how we met. So I was in the motor manufacturing space, and this was early on working with the packagers, kind of developing new technology and really kind of custom design electric motors for the new pumps. and had some success, built some prototypes, actually got in, made some acquisitions in the electric motor and generator manufacturing space, and kind of created a new brand company called a uh, deal Electric Company that we had acquired from Hyundai, and then about three years ago, had a change of heart and wanted to get out of the manufacturing space and move into saw this really growing trend of electric frac, and wanted to go in and jump in on the gas treating and the power generation side of things, saw a need where really there was going to be a bifurcation of you know the need for someone to come in with that service of the true turnkey gas-to-wire solution for supporting electric frac growth. And so me and a couple of guys started Alliance OGP, which focused on the field gas treating for electric frac and had some success working with Evolution. And actually, our claim to fame was doing all the Evolution's EFRAC gas treating for them. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. we did that with them. Actually, just ended up selling kind of that business to Evolution at the end of, the, end of the last year. But fast forward a little bit, we did a, a private equity transaction with a private equity firm here in Houston, actually in the Woodlands area, named Royal Energy Investors. And in, did a transaction to bring Lifecycle Power and Alliance under one Holding Co. umbrella. And so that was the uh, end of 2020. And fast forward through COVID and all that good stuff, and now we're here we are and excited. But that's a long kind of story of how, we, how I got here. Justin has a different story. He's a, a veteran. I'll let Justin kind of jump in on how he got here to Lifecycle.
3: Yeah, Justin, tell us. So I actually got my start in the turbine industry as a field technician. It's kind of a weird situation because I was working for an artificial lift company manufacturing. I was actually out building pump jacks. And this was you know around 2015. And the market dropped out. Nobody was really buying pump jacks. And just through a friend of mine from the Army, he was like, hey, man, I've got this guy that's doing gas turbine power generation in West Texas, which I had no idea what a turbine was, um, aside from the fact that I knew that they were on airplanes. And you know there wasn't a lot of Business development jobs going on in the last drop in the market. So, went to work as a turbine technician and just kind of learned on the fly. And, you know, that he was using a variant of the turbines that we're using today, manufactured by Solar Turbines, which is a subsidiary of Caterpillar. And it, kind of doing the same thing what we're doing today. He was just doing it on a smaller scale, using industrial turbines to generate power using flare gas as a fuel source and building on microgrids. So, kind of one of the very first people out here in West Texas to be using industrial turbines in the fashion that he was doing to convert flare gas into electricity. So fast forward a few years, I got linked up with Lifecycle Power, essentially doing the same thing that I started off doing, except taking on more of a business development role and using much, much larger machines and moved from the production space all the way into drilling and now EFRAC. So in terms of gas turbines go and using them for, power generation of the oil field, you know, we've kind of come a long way from using a small turbine to power a handful of pump jacks, and now we're powering entire electric track fleets.
2: Yeah, I think, Jim, to add on to that, I guess, a quick history of life cycle. We started around 2018 and really kind of got our start just doing some small projects with some EMP companies, five megawatts here and there, and this was really the time when the Midland Basin, Delaware Basin were just blowing up and the electrical infrastructure was not there at all. And so, you know, John Tuma, the founder of LiveCycle, really had the foresight to work with some of these operators to go build some solutions to convince them to go create a centralized point to create power. You know what you're going to develop, you're going to run those lines there. you got two to three years that Encore is going to come to that substation to that exact spot. So why not go put power generation as it's there, build out the local distribution lines and go power your fleet Your assets, your well sites from that central location, and so we, you know, we started working with you know likes of Diamondback and XTO and Endeavor, and really saw a lot of growth as that market was just, you know, launching forward, taking off, and then, of course, COVID happens, and we started with, I think around COVID time, we had about 160 megawatts or so. Justin, does that sound about right? Pretty close. Pretty close, and then right now, you know, we made it through COVID. We of course. Got hit just like anybody else in this industry. It was tough for us, but you know, end of last year, we kind of had a change, and it was really a fortunate event. I mean, a very unfortunate event happened to Texas when the freeze happened, but right. you know, after that, there was some legislation that changed to allow some of the utility companies to lease and pack up emergency generation. And so in 2021, we were able to kind of move some assets and grow our asset base outside of the oil and gas space, and now we've grown from a pre-COVID levels to about 160 megawatts in it by... Right now, we have on order of about 750 megawatts. Holy smokes, man. Yeah. That
1: is a lot. That yeah, is a huge so increase. A yeah. huge
2: increase. So by this year, and, and I think the total portfolio right now that we control is about 830 megawatts. Wow. So, and all primarily located in Texas and all in the United States right now.
1: Hey, everybody. Let me jump in here for a second just to thank our generous sponsors, Juliet Electric Motors. Without their support, this podcast wouldn't even be possible. So for all of your oil-filled electric motor needs, whether that's new motors, refurbs, field work, whatever you need, be sure and give Joliet a call. Remember, that's Joliet Electric Motors, powering today's energy and transition for tomorrow's energy needs. Let's get back to the show. And so you're partly responsible for us not having a blackout this time when we had the freezing weather. Yeah, so part of
2: the change is the the utility companies wanted to sort you know, utility companies who own and manage the local distribution lines were never allowed to have their own generation assets. And so they were able to now strategically place, you know, 30 megawatt blocks throughout their distribution network. And they feel that with that amount of power that they are putting in place that they can prevent blackouts in situations that we occurred in February of last year. Nice. Over that's the case, but, you know, <laughs> we don't see that again.
1: <laughs> well, congrats, because we haven't seen any since then. So <laughs> something's going right there. So it's interesting because for me, I mean, understanding a little history on oil-filled microgrids. So what you're saying is, is people were using electricity locally, but then they were like, hey, wait a second. The operators were like, why don't we build this out and be able to distribute from a central point? Just
2: to, I guess... Justin, if you want to jump in here, but I'll, let me just give one quick example here. But So like when you go drill a well in West Texas and you want to go put a ESP, an electrical submersible pump on it, it's going to be today, these things are drawing 500, 600 horsepower to go. And so you're going to a pad now, you're drilling, call it 10 wells or whatever it's going to be. And you have 10 electrical ESPs on that well, you got five megawatts of load on that one pad, which is, used to be back in the day when you go in Eagleford, when local generation, natural gas generation started coming on the pad site, it would be at the pad site. They would power some ESPs, maybe have a 50 to 200 you know, kilowatt unit just stationary there and then wait until the utility power gets there. But the power loads has just, with the electrification of the oil field, the load demand has increased every single year just dramatically as we're getting more and more power down the hole to get product out as faster and faster. So yep. it plays well into our business model. And, you know, we really want to help give operators the idea that Encore, you know, the ERCOT, the lines may get there a long time, but go out and plan for electrical infrastructure. Go plan your areas, go build out your local microgrids. Let us go be the interim solution and be that bridge for those two years that until you get that substation built, et cetera. Right, right. So, we want to continue this trend of electrification because it makes operations so much more efficient for these operators. Yeah, and so,
1: greener, and greener,
2: right, yeah. Shane? Yeah.
0: So I was just sitting there listening to George, and I was not aware of that, but it makes sense because I know we're constantly drilling. You know, further it requires more horsepower, more pressure, and you know I didn't realize that that part of it was growing as well. But that just shows why I'm a motor guy and why George thankfully decided to go ahead and move on to greener pastures. <laughs> so. so I appreciate that, George. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, <laughs> but so, it's obviously not just ESG now; it's by demand.
1: I yeah, mean, exactly, God. exactly. Yeah, and so Justin, your history—you were kind of there at the inception of that, right? I mean, you were working on some of the first turbine electricity, so you've seen this whole microgrid thing grow up, right? It's
3: you know kind of touching back on the you know demand for power and how I first started out here building pump jacks. You know, we were you know in 2013, 2014 when you know we had the last. You know, the last boom out here, we were, you know, setting out, you know, five, six, seven pump jacks a week. And now with the advent of ESPs and directional drilling and, you know, just the essentially shift in the past few years from rod lift to whether it's ESP or gas lift, you know, a handful of other artificial lift options like jet pumps, whether you've got one, two, three, four and horsepower motors focused on, you know, one well for artificial lift. You know, take into account that a lot of empty operators are switching from gas lift with a reciprocating engine to an electrically driven gas lift engine or gas lift motor. The demand for electricity has just skyrocketed over the past few years. And so, you know, when we were putting out these, you know, one and two megawatt gas turbines for production leases, it was, you know, a lot of times we were oversizing because, you know, we were typically just powering pump jacks. Now, you know, fast forward five, six years, now our five and 10 megawatt packages are quickly becoming undersized because there's just so much more horsepower out of the field. And it's just continuing to grow as we bring on, you know, more electrified frack fleets, larger ESPs, more facilities switching over from gas-fired engines to electric to reduce emissions and increase efficiencies and costs. It's just the electrical demand is just continuing to exponentially grow.
1: Yep. And in that artificial lift space, right, the switch over to ESPs and whatnot, that was pure efficiency. That didn't have anything to do with ESG and green or any of that, right? It was just, hey, these are better. Let's figure out how to get some electricity and make them work, right? Right.
0: Yep. Here's a loaded question by the motor guy here. So is there enough power to go around
2: to keep up with demand? Short-term, no, but hopefully long-term, yes. I mean, right now, I guess what we've seen... You know, I said what we've done on the utility side, that's taken a lot of capacity from the market. The COVID supply chain just really hampered things. And, you know, there is a tight supply of readily available turbine power out there and reset power out there. And so it's in short supply. And I think it'll be another 12 to 18 month problem. Maybe not, maybe 24 months. I don't know how long, but there is some short supply. I
3: I think it'll be longer than that. I mean, you've got,
2: sorry to interject,
3: I mean, but you've got... You know, not Please. just the oil and gas industry that's trying to electrify. You've got the entire country screaming to go on electrically driven this or that, whether it's, it's cars or you know anything that's got a gas or diesel engine on it. It seems to be, you know, in our current climate, you know, it kind of seems to be the enemy right now. So everybody wants to switch over to electric. And ideally, you know, an ideal situation, and I'm just speaking, you know, just solely for oil and gas. But, you know, ideally, everything would be run off grid power, whether it's your frack fleet or your drilling rig. You know, obviously, your production facilities, but it can't be that way. You know, you're drilling in a remote location that doesn't have access to utility power. So, of course, the generators are going to come in to fill that gap. So, yeah, I mean, it's going to be a problem, not just for 12, 24 months, but it's, I mean, as long as we continue to, you know, keep drilling in remote areas like West Texas, you're always going to have a demand for remote power generation.
1: Yeah, that's definitely true. But listen to this, Justin, a lot of the guys who are listening to this podcast and gals, they're engineers at operating companies, right? And so, you know, to make this really practical on their level, can either you or George step us through, what does it take for planning, you know, like timelines and things like that? Like say I'm an operator and I'm like, oh yeah, you know, I'm going to be drilling out there. So I better plan on a microgrid. How does that whole thing roll
3: out? Justin, I, I think mean the first step go ahead. Yeah, I mean the the first step is actually just having a plan. I mean, more often than not, we come across EMP groups that, you know, by no fault of their own, they perhaps just aren't large enough to have a full-on electrical engineering group that can do the load analytics, project the projected decline curves, their ESPs, take into account delivery schedule from Encore. Like there's a lot of stuff that goes into planning out a microgrid more than just be like, okay, I've got 10,000 horsepower VSPs. I need to get power for it. Like there's a lot of different factors that, you know, a good number of production companies out here just aren't prepared to handle because production engineers, you know, are just focused on getting oil out of the well. Right. And a lot of them have been kind of had the booger flipped on and be like, Hey, you know, get this oil out of the well, you know, but by the way, we need you to figure out, you know, how to power them for the next 18 months before the utility gets there. And so, you know, Having a plan is a great start, but, like, understanding what exactly you're supposed to be planning for, it's been kind of a challenge for some of these companies because they just don't have the resources in-house to do it. And that's kind of where we come in. You know, we're a stopgap between, you know, once a well comes online or when it needs, you know, power to run the ESP or whatever type of artificial lift that they're doing to when the utility actually comes in and gets connected. And, you know, we can help them, you know, plan out what power that they're going to require for that, you know, twelve or eighteen months or whatever it is, and then also help them, you know, work with them on their decline curves. A lot of production engineers in the past typically haven't taken into account the decline curves on their ESPs. And they're like, okay, we need, you know, ten thousand horsepower for the next few months, but then, you know, as the decline curve starts to taper off, you know, like, look, you know, we can actually cater to your power needs and remove an engine or remove two engines so you're not you know, having excess power out on your production list that you don't necessarily need. And that's a huge part of planning for power, both whether you're running on natural gas power generation like us, or you're, you know, working in your retail electrical contracts for the utility is, you know, it's really taking into account decline curves. And I'm just speaking straightly just for production right now, because it's a good example. Because, again, decline curves and how they relate to power demand have traditionally been overlooked by a lot of companies.
2: And so, like, Jim, for example, like to go plan for your power for your field, it's a long process. You're going to go plan the development of that field. You're going to go design all those wells. You're going to say, okay, I'm going to have 50 in this area. I'm going to have this many ESPs, this is going to be my power load. So then you go and you go start doing the interconnection process, which is a multi-year process a lot of times to go get interconnected to the grid, build your own substation. They're doing a lot of projecting of what their demand is going to be. And then based on assumptions that that certain date, right? So that changes all the time with the market conditions. Right. And then you get told X date that that power is going to get there on June 1st. Well, it may be June 1st of the next year. You don't, <laughs> you don't really know. And so there's a lot of unknowns, but there's a lot of planning that has to go in and there's a lot of money that has to go out on the front end. Right. And so it's just making people aware of the different options available to make it more flexible spending on terms of the development of your capital budget. And I think there's ways that you don't have to go Make this huge front end loaded expense in terms of getting fully committed to the grid and all that stuff. When you can piece it together by you know producing your own power with resources that are there locally doing it in a very efficient, clean manner to power your operations, and then bring the grid in as it gets in. But having a combination of those two is a real way to secure your operations because that grid, as we saw in February last year, that grid go out. So, yeah, that's
1: true right? too. Yeah, so, I didn't think about that. But yeah. right?
2: I mean, if you're already offsetting some of your power costs, why not oversize that kind of area so you can keep certain facilities guaranteed to be online all the time.
1: Right. So like one of the big pitfalls, like Jess was saying, is when you're setting up a microgrid is like, at least on the production side is not taking into account decline curves. But what about like, I mean, is that one of the problems like people don't think about is like, Oh, Hey, you know, I'm going to tie into the grid. If they say they're going to be here on this
2: date. I mean, do they not? It gets better. It gets so, better than that. Yeah. So. <laughs> So you're planning out all this production power, and then now with this growth of EFRAC, now that people want to go plug in 35 megawatts of intermittent load onto that grid, so they're getting even bigger and bigger power loads that they want to go try to electrify and green and make it grid-connected EFRAC power. It sounds awesome. It's beautiful. Yeah, just plug in the power lines. Yeah, yeah, just it's do that. It's just not that simple. <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> Well, so I've
0: got to take maybe some credit or some blame on that, so... I mean, one of our strategies when we were trying to go out and first start to develop electric frac. So one of the bigger prohibiting factors is the cost of power, especially when we first were going out talking about electric frac, right? Because everybody heard a million dollars per megawatt. So one of my aces in the deck was always having life cycles as a way to bridge the gap, which you guys talked about earlier, in terms of mitigating cost upfront CapEx cost to do an electric frack. So I would oversimplify things and say, what if there was a way to not have to pay for that power up front and your customer could actually have a purchase power agreement with an entity or with the group called life cycle power. So when it comes to oversimplifying, that's something I'm very good at. And so I'll take some heat for oversimplifying that concept. Wait, wait, you guys, you guys
1: are burying the lead. So what you're saying is, is Lifecycle <laughs> power will go out and set up this stuff no CapEx, right? You just sign an agreement saying, hey, this is what we're going to charge you per kilowatt or whatever. For the
2: power piece. Typically, the operator will put in their own line infrastructure because that's their right oh, of way, okay. their land. That's something that's going to be there forever. The local distribution lines will be on the operator.
1: Oh, okay. But after that, you're just like a local utility, right? right. So a you're, power plant. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Interesting, say. interesting. Yeah.
2: No, no, no. And how much does that mean? Especially, I mean, it made a lot of sense when- 2018, 2019, when gas had a lot of times a negative value out there. I mean, literally we had free fuel like in a lot of operators' minds that, yeah, they're paying for our our equipment costs, but it's a fraction of what... It's still a heck of a deal, right? Oh, absolutely.
1: And it doesn't matter what gas sales for. If there's no lines to take it away, I mean, you're just going to flare it off, right? What are you going to do? I mean, that's... Make it useful. useful.
2: It's just, you know, always hate flying to West Texas and seeing the amount of flares. I'm not... An environmentalist by any means, but it's just a wasted asset, wasted hydrocarbon that literally you could just right. run it through a turbine, produce power. Even cost, I mean, it's just, there's cost to it, et cetera, but it just hates seeing that stuff go to waste.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
2: So I was going to ask you guys, you know, in terms of,
0: let's say, request for quota or the amount of power, how much power are you seeing kind of being attributed towards electric frack right now? Like, you know, just do you have like a ballpark and how much?
2: I would say a lot of our conversations that we have with operators, larger operators, larger mm-hmm. independents, and the multinational integrateds that it's a lot of electric fat conversations. I would say that's been a lot of our demand this year. Wouldn't you say, Justin, on the oil and gas side? I'd say it's
3: probably about 90% of it right now.
2: 90%? On the oil
3: and. Wow. It's kind of like kind of what we're seeing right now, again, referencing the transition from pump jacks to ESPs. We're seeing, I think, a pretty simple transition on the electric frack side from, you know, diesel-driven natural gas fleets to, you know, biofuel or blended fleets to just, you know, 100% pure electric for their, you know, wanting to power their fleets off utility if they can. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of like the shiny new toy, you know, the e-frack or the e-fleets, whatever <laughs> you want to call them. I mean, it is, you know. it's We saw in the conference a couple weeks ago, I mean, it's just like everyone's, you know, showcasing their new electric-driven pump. I mean, it's the... Like I said, this is a new toy in the completion space. And so everybody, you know, kind of wants a piece of it. And a lot of them are performing really well. And so, yeah, absolutely. Shane, you know this.
2: So, like, we always promised the benefits of electric frack of fuel savings, emissions. Mm -hmm. But I think people are actually starting to see that as producing a better frack, potentially. Like, having more control, VFD-controlled electric motor, I think people are starting to see the benefit
0: of the actual pump. Absolutely. You know, it goes back to the day. And again, kind of back to the motif of oversimplifying things. You know, it's very similar to what we saw in the AC rig market and the evolution of that. We're just doing it at a very accelerated rate. We're going from, you know, conventional diesel drive mechanicals operations to straight to VFD, you know, electric motor and gas turbine. But, you know, something that's going to provide more horsepower per footprint it's going to reduce your overall opEx cost, dollars per horsepower per pumper out there. So absolutely, you're spot on. And one of the things I was thinking about with that being said is, you know, you guys, you've talked a lot about gas turbines, but there's also some other power generation sources out there utilizing gas recepts and batteries and stuff like that. Are you guys at all involved with yeah. that or is there a specific advantage to using, you know, maybe a turbine over a gas recept when it comes to electric frack or some of these other applications?
2: Historically we have been a gas turbine company. There's no doubt about it. We own a fleet of recips. to be our Black Starts are always our re-sip engines, so we're not opposed to re-sip engines. We have them in our fleet. We love the simplicity of a turbine in terms of operations. While a lot of people think that a turbine is a very complex machine because it spins at a very fast rate, mm-hmm. you know, 10,000 plus rpm. It's actually only spinning on there's only four moving parts really in a turbine compared to a re-sip engine that has hundreds of moving parts. So it's a very simple machine to own and operate. And a low cost of maintenance, it's just a very reliable piece of machinery. The recip, it's a proven design. There are some benefits to recips. I think there's some downfalls that scare me a little bit in EFRAC because you know, one of the big benefits of EFRAC is going out and using field gas. LNG, CNG as your delivery of fuel doesn't give you the true cost savings of field gas. Right. And so one of the big things with recips is that at some point over when you start dealing with 1150, 1200, 1250, 1300 BTU gas, the receipts will run into issues. There's no doubt about it. You'll need some advanced gas treating. I know gas treating. You'll need advanced gas treating to get that to a manageable level, to get that methane number to an 80% level without hitting a big D rate. A turbine, on the other hand, we can handle a fluctuation of fuels from 1000 BTU to 1600 BTU. We've run it day in and day out for four plus years. And wow. So. That's a
1: big advantage, yeah? Huh?
2: It's from fuel fluctuation and a fuel gas perspective, there's no way that anybody could ever commit to say that a re is better than a turbine. There's
1: no way. But the advantage of a gas re is that you can get them, right? You can get I mean, them in 26 weeks. Is and that I, is I, that I, still I, still, I, still yeah. any time really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, what is it for a turbine? What is 40? it for a turbine? Forty. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. So <laughs> so it's too long,
2: no matter what, right? I mean, it, yeah. No. Yeah. And, and look, there there From are anybody else, <laughs> and I will sound very pro turbine, but Justin knows we're looking at there's applications for recips, there's applications for recips and batteries, there's applications of turbines and recips. We are a power service provider, so if there's a good way to produce power we're going to look at it and consider it for our portfolio we are primarily turbines we are going to keep an open mind to advances in technology the good thing is is that being a power service provider there are big huge manufacturers like GE Caterpillar Solar and other companies out there that are spending millions of dollars in R&D to advance the technology on the combustion side to improve the efficiency and so we as a owner and operator of equipment rely on these manufacturers to kind of take us to the next level. And we will look across the field and pick what's best for our particular application and our operations and use what's best available and right. what we think fits best with our model.
0: So a couple of questions I was thinking of while you were saying all that. So carbon sequestering is becoming a big conversation topic about taking, you know, whatever is being emitted into the atmosphere and capturing that, putting it into a disposal well or something like that, figuring out other ways to utilize that instead of having to go in the atmosphere. And the other thing is, you know, I think about these frack spreads and the amount of water that's being used. Are you all taking, looking down the road and is there an opportunity to take hydrogen, for example, and utilize that as another type of fuel source to generate power for these applications? hundred percent.
2: As I was just saying, these manufacturers are spending millions of dollars every single year on advancing technology. I can rely on GE and solar and these people who are actually doing hydrogen programs. I mean, GE, I think most of our engines can burn some percentage of hydrogen. I think most of our engines can, some manufacturers claim higher than others, but we are definitely looking at hydrogen. We know our machines are already set up for hydrogen. It's just, when is the infrastructure going to be created to produce hydrogen at a cost competitive landscape that people want to actually start incorporating into their operations?
1: What about the wind and solar angle? Do you see any of that? I mean, is there any traction on that yet? I mean, guys coming to you saying,
2: hey, man, what about using some of this? So not so much. I mean, not as much. I mean, typically the wind and solar developments are more large scale, utility scale developments that are going through a long process, interconnection process and some sort of PPA agreement, we are facing more of an operator as a specific need and saying we need power. And so we do not really there in a long period of time to go invest in a 25-year solar asset that's going to go sit next to our turbine. Right? Would yeah. we be open to that? Yes, of course. We would be open to opportunities like that, but it's just we haven't, in our business model at this point, being a power service provider, we haven't really been into the wind and solar development. Well, but, uh, essentially it'd have to kind of be mobile for you guys to be able to <laughs>
0: utilize yeah. that, right? We're,
2: we're looking at <laughs> I mean we are doing more some stationary stuff these days too. We are traditionally a mobile power generation company, but we're evolving and we're looking at lots of different opportunities. All awesome. right.
1: Well, thanks Justin and George for being on the show and explaining this. If any of our listeners want to get a hold of you and talk microgrids and power and things with you, what's the best way to do that?
2: Websites, lcpower.energy. You can reach any of Justin or myself, G. Jackson at Energy, or Jay Lippman at Energy, And we'll be happy to have a conversation, answer any questions and help these operators, people just kind of develop a power strategy that is effective.
1: Excellent. Excellent. And I know there's a lot of people out there who are curious about it. And one of the big takeaways, tell me, Shane, I don't know, one of the big takeaways for me, a novice in all of this, is that this is not just for the big boys. You can do this if you're a mid to small operator, you can use electricity yeah. and it's affordable and yeah, well, I think worthwhile, any, well, right?
2: Just I mean, on that point, I think any operator, specifically to electric frac, if any operator knows that they're going to have a contracted frack spread at least one one and a half spreads demand for a year, you can look at potentially having electric spread because right now to get electric spread, you have to do multi-year contracts, it seems like. So as long as you know you have demand, then if you have the infrastructure to support it, it could be a really nice long-term solution for people. So I think hopefully it started at the bigger guys. You're going to start trickling it down. I hope it trickles down to the independence and everybody starts adopting this.
1: Nice, nice. Shane, anything else?
2: Yeah, so the only thing I was thinking that
0: I was enlightened on was, you know, not only, obviously, I knew the ESG thing was kind of pushing electrification, right? But I was a little bit foolish and naive in the idea that actually just the sheer demand and how things are growing in horsepower, that OPEX-wise, I mean, this is a better solution than operating the way they have, you know, historically utilized in diesel.
2: Yeah. On that point, I mean, like, I had a conversation today. It's like, rough estimates, so... You know, we'll have a 35 megawatt turbine on location. We'll have one or two guys, depending on the application, the time of the day, the time of the frack, et cetera. But if I had 14 reciprocated engines on location, I'm going to have to have more than two guys on location to service those engines. So you have more personnel. Right. So ultimately right there, that's a just one OPEX. And then a safety, anytime you have more personnel on location, that's a safety concern. So... We think this is from an operational standpoint, from a safety standpoint, from a financial standpoint, that the turbine is the premier solution. And, you know, you got to look at all the different components in order to really say what solution are you going to go with? You can't just look at one thing or the other. There's a lot of different components you need to factor in to say what is the best solution for you. Yeah, absolutely.
0: This is more of a funny thing that I was thinking
2: as we're coming to close
0: here, but I'm sure everybody's aware of what's happening geopolitically. We don't need to go there. But our brain scientists or our top thinkers have kind of said, if you're tired of paying for gas, you should get an electric vehicle. So have you guys done the math on how much power you're going to have to have to support that when everybody goes out and buys an EV? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> we yeah. might, might scratch that, but...
2: <laughs> the real calculation is how many mines are you going to have to develop to produce that lithium right. to make the U.S. have a 100% EV fleets.
1: And what are you going to do with the batteries when they're spent, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, that's, no, a, uh, that's
2: a big question. Look, I'm for all-the-above solution from wind, solar, nuclear, gas, coal, everything. everything. I mean, you can't flip a switch and one or the other it's just it's a, we need to become we've got to use common sense and just become realistic. keep doing
0: what we're doing we've always been innovative in this industry and we'll continue along that path and as a collective team
2: that's right yep. and to innovate
1: j- just like george was saying man and we talked about in the last episode you know it's not this one or that one it's a combination of all things yep. right and it all has to come together to work together to you know make everything greener. I mean, it, you can't just stop one and start the other. It just doesn't work that way. Right. But thanks again, guys, George, Justin, hopefully you're still there on the phone. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> yeah. 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 Justin. Sorry, Justin. <laughs>
1: it's been great having you guys on the show and yeah, I know our listeners are just going to love this episode and they'll be looking forward to maybe speaking with you guys directly. So
0: maybe we do in West Texas next
1: time. Yeah. That'd be fun, Justin. Then you can be live.
3: Hey, I'm all for it. Come out to us anytime you want, man. <laughs> all right, <laughs> all right guys. Good. Thank you so much. All
2: right.
1: Take care. All right. Bye.
0: Bye. Thanks for listening to today's guest. If you have any questions related to today's episode, please email us at Podcast at worldoil.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Joliet Electric Motor. That's been providing an engineered custom motor solutions for the oil field for over 30 years. If you have any questions related to your motor needs, please email me at shaneh at jolietelectricmotors.com.